Beware the time bomb in your super fund and who won't give peace a chance? Coming up on today's show. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 15th of July 2022. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robbie Barwick. Welcome. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, we will be discussing derivatives, the uh, financial form of gambling, a time bomb raising its ugly head again, this time in your super fund. And then we're going to talk about uh, early efforts to try to restore diplomatic relations with China. And the people who want to sabotage it. Absolutely. So don't forget to hit the like button if you enjoy the show and subscribe and share it as widely as possible. Now, before we get into the first major topic today. Yeah, I want to talk about the our Postal Bank campaign, uh, Elisa, because Parliament's going to be sitting uh, in roughly a week's time on the 26th of July, the first seat, the first sitting of the of the new parliament under this new government. Now, we're going to talk about the Postal Bank as part of the show in, in, in uh, relation to the, the derivatives danger in super funds. Um, but I'm appealing to all the regulars now and the people who support our Postal Bank campaign. We're going to put a link below, which is a link to the contact details of senators and members. And what we need everyone to do immediately as of Monday is call and email your member of parliament, your local member of parliament. Find out, you know, you, you just voted, so you should... Try and remember what electorate you're in. Find your electorate, find your member of parliament, find their contact details for your electorate office, send them an email telling them to support the campaign for a postal bank. If, you ha if you've got a copy of the PDF of our flyer, or you can get it on our website, we'll have that link as well, you can attach that to it saying, tell them you need them to support the postal bank. Tell them why you support the postal bank and why you're reaching out to them. But then do this, get the phone number and make a call to their office and some people can be a little bit, you know, unsure about, you know, how these calls can go, etc. Oh, am I qualified to talk about a postal bank? Don't worry about that. If you want to talk about the postal bank, do so. And please do. Call them. It's much more powerful than a phone than an email. But what you can minimally do is call up and say, did you get my email? And what happens is the staff will go through the inbox and they'll find your email and they'll confirm to you, yes, we've got your email. Now, you will already have received an automated reply from their office. Ignore that. That's just a, that's the computer doing that, right? What you're trying to do is get the staff to acknowledge that you sent an email and you were so concerned about it, you followed it up with a phone call because then that highlights your email above everybody else's because we want every politician, there's a whole bunch of new ones, every politician to be aware of this campaign before Parliament sits. Because we, you know, we have to build a massive groundswell of support here. There's lots of, um, you know, I don't have time to go through it all now. There's lots of threads that are all coming together. Lots of different interest groups, constituencies that are that, that are going to rally around this, right? But that's what we need everybody as individuals to do as an immediate priority, please. So we'll put out a release to that effect on Monday. But if you're um, watching this now, please just plan to do it anyway. Use the links below and make. Send that email and make those calls. Yeah. Okay, so getting now into some of the nitty-gritty of it. Beware the time bomb in your super fund. And we'll come back to how the Postal Bank 
yep. is part of the solution to this and to virtually every problem you know you can think about that's facing us today in one way or another it can facilitate the solutions that we need so um, derivatives are riddling people's superannuation funds and you know it's not well, the, 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 they we know they are because they were enough to cause the treasurer back in November Josh Frydenberg yes. to write a letter which we'll read excerpts of but Lisa he doesn't identify which funds no the reply doesn't identify which funds but what they do say there's only there's some funds unnamed who have a lot of derivatives that's why it's mm. got their attention mm -hmm. so this is there's a lot of there's a lack of transparency on this issue so your fund may be one of them. We can't tell you if it is, though. Yeah, so the previous treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, as you said, late last year in November 2021, wrote to the governor of the Reserve Bank, Dr Philip Lowe. Uh, he basically said, look, we undertook these consultations uh, and through this process identified that some superannuation funds appear to be engaging in a large number of derivative transactions. Now, of course, derivatives, just for people who aren't aware, are pure gambling. They're a form yeah. of financial contract which allows banks and various other financial... Even the safe term. Even, when, even the term they use for safe derivatives, Elisa, hedging, is a gambling term. Mm. So, so they're highly risky. Supposedly they're used to hedge risk, but if you take the wrong bet or yeah. things go foul in the markets, you yeah. can lose everything because they're highly leveraged um, and they are speculative. So uh, Josh Frydenberg went on to say, with more than $3.3 trillion managed by Australia's superannuation funds, they are a systemically important part of our financial system. And he asked the council to advise, this is the Council of Foreign... Um, financial Regulators. The Financial Regulators, which comprises not only the RBA, but the... APRA, ASIC and uh, the Treasury. So he wanted to be aware of any concerns relating to the operational capability of funds to manage these large volumes of derivatives, prudential... Uh, i.e. regulatory implications for these individual funds and the outcomes for members of those funds, more importantly, and any broader implications in terms of financial system stability. So they obviously were quite concerned about this, Robbie. Well, it's an extraordinary letter for that reason. We, I mean, this show's been going, what is it, producer? 11 years? There's a producer <laughs> behind the camera there. It's 11 years now, right? This show's been going. 2010, so 12 years. Yeah. And um, uh, in that time, we've probably, we've probably talked about derivatives more than any other subject, seriously. Yeah, there wouldn't be too many shows where we didn't talk about <laughs> derivatives, really. And because we started it straight after the global financial crisis. Mm. And we were saying, look, this is, and we had a whole campaign for Glass-Steagall, breaking up the banks to separate deposits from any contact with derivatives, danger, etc. Um, but in that time, all we've, all we've got from the establishment at least there was a wall of denial, mm. right? The same kind of denial that led to the global financial crisis being a derivatives crisis because they denied it would be a problem. We just experienced Australia, in Australia, total denial that there was an issue. Now we've got a letter mm. from the treasurer who, by the way, worked as an investment banker. It's one of the worst derivatives basket cases in the world, Deutsche Bank. Mm. That treasurer wrote a letter to the Council of Financial Regulators saying, um, I'm concerned about these derivatives. Mm. 
No, it's a real red flag. And he asked for this advice, these answers to his questions by the 30th of June this year, 2022. So the response came on the 29th of June, oh, 2022, um, okay, to had, the new I, treasurer. And I have to say, don't, don't beep this out. I think we're allowed to say it on our show. What assholes? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're told that seven months or whatever. Oh, yeah. They, and they probably just did it on the 28th of we're June. We're going to give you a, seven, a deadline in seven months and yeah. they do it the day before. Yeah. So it's not like it would have taken that long, obviously. Sorry if it was an issue. <laughs> Sorry if there is danger. Yeah, a bit late. So on the 29th of June, a reply from Philip Lowe was sent to the new treasurer, Dr. Jim Chalmers. Uh, and basically the bottom line, as he says in the second paragraph, is it raises no particular concerns at this point in time. And he goes on to explain why that is. Um, derivatives exposures of trustees are currently concentrated amongst a handful of funds. So again, confirming that there's a few that have a lot. But which ones? Yeah. Um, derivatives usage, he went on to say, however, um, a derivatives usage is likely to, be, likely to become more widespread in coming years as the sector continues to mature and consolidate. And I just noted that because there's been various changes going on to superannuation recently, such as big operators like Vanguard, one of the top three with State Street and Black, uh, BlackRock moving in to manage Australian super. So yes, no doubt it's going to become more widespread, but you know, nothing to worry about, nothing to see here. Um, so what that means is, more mature means when these derivatives funds grow up and are old enough to go to the casino. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to get worse. Um, but yeah, he, in regard to the prudential implications, uh, he said that basically the trustees are not permitted to use derivatives for gearing purposes, but their use of derivatives is limited to risk management and derivatives may not be used to gain leveraged exposure to market risks. All right, so that answer raises more questions than it answers, Elisa. Um, yeah, he, just he just clarifies that the main use of the derivatives is for hedging foreign exchange exposures. All right, I want to make a point about that in a second, but, but, what he, but I want to point out two things. So he's saying this is just for risk management. Well, what is super? That's, your, that's our money that we've had to compulsory or our employers compulsory hand, compulsorily hand over for, to be managed for our retirement, right? Um, does any, can anyone tell me, is there a special super fund in Australia that's very different to everybody else and therefore has different risks? Or, are they, or are there, is the main variation probably their size? You know, the Australian super is the biggest one and there's lots of, there's bigger ones and smaller ones. Is the, and put aside the self-managed ones. Would the main variation be their size? Um, because I want to know why uh, what they've said is a handful of funds have a lot of derivatives mm. for risk management that the other ones feel they don't need to have. Because the, that raises the question, is it really risk management? Because I use the word um, predominantly, predominantly for risk management, but then it's but in, the, in the section there, it says, it quotes the CIS Act, which is the Superannuation Act, the main effect of this constraint is that use of derivatives is limited to risk management. Well, limited to means it cannot be but risk management. So why did they say earlier predominantly risk mm. management? Mm. These kind of words matter when it comes to your savings, right? Your, so your, your savings are already at risk because they're in the stock market. That's a casino enough. But if there's worse risk than that, um, you should be concerned. So that was the first question. 
The second, um, oh, so I'll do, I'll do three things actually, because this goes back to this, this thing on the second page there. We can put this, this um, chart up on the screen. Superfund, to back up this, the, the claim that it's the main use of derivatives is for hedging foreign exchange exposures, then they have a chart there and they show exposure type, percent of the total, the 70%, 77% of the derivatives in super funds is for foreign exchange. That means fluctuations in interest rates, in, sorry, in exchange rates, the value of the Australian dollar versus other currencies like the US dollar, the, the Japanese yen, whatever. Um, the second highest um, sector though is interest rates, right? So 8.9% hedge against interest rates, then it's equity, then others, and it goes down 0.1% against commodities. Now, that request was put through in November. They get a reply seven months later. Do you know what else happened in that seven months? The financial world turned upside down. And the same Philip Lowe, in the same month, November, also said, November last year, and a lot of people went out and made investments on this basis, he put out a statement two months in a row that gave a clear signal there would be no interest rate rises in Australia until 2023. Sorry, 2024, at the end of 2023. No interest rate rises. People went and bought houses on that. People went and made investments on that. People went and fixed into, into fixed interest rate periods on that, etc. That was that was the claim that, that that he made. Since then, interest rates have gone through the roof, and it's caught so many people out. It's not funny. So, what is the qualifications of this guy's predictions anyway to, to even make these predictions? But if super funds who are betting using derivatives to hedge on interest rates took his prediction seriously. The assumptions of their contracts, Elisa, may be all wrong. Mm. They may be make, losing money already because of how dramatic it's changed. And, and exchange rates have gone haywire as well. The, the Russia's special military operation in Ukraine um, saw the sanctions come on. The Russian ruble fell, fell through the floor initially. Now it's soared because all the sanctions have blown back on the United States. There's... Chaos in the currencies and inflate because of inflation right around the world. The ruble is now the strongest performing currency. None of this could have been predicted back in November last year, mm -hmm. right? What assumptions in those derivatives are at issue here, right? And, and, and if they've made bets that are wrong, they could be losing money already. But here's the third one, which is what we, why we want to talk about this. We've got the governor of the RBA on behalf of the Council of Financial Regulators, who are the high priests of our financial system. That's what they are. And they like being treated like that, trust me. They are saying these derivatives are safe because there's an act of parliament that says they cannot be used for gearing to, to, create, to leverage financial investments. Mm. So my, our question that we raised was, all right, so you've gone, to, you've gone to great pains to say they're safe for that reason. Are the derivatives in the banks, which are much, much greater in and, scope. And the banks that are looking after our deposits. The banks that are look where your deposit is. Are the derivatives in those banks also regulated that way? Mm. Are they limited in what they can do? You know the answer? Mm -mm. No. <laughs> they are not. So is this letter an inadvertent way for the, for the inadvertent admission by the Reserve Bank Governor that you should be worried about the derivatives in the banks? Well, I think it is because that's what we've been. That's why we've been talking about this subject for twelve for twelve years. Yeah, you should be worried. And the banks are hiding their derivatives, 
like they used to publish their derivatives figures yep. and they no longer do. Well, let's look at, let's look at uh, we've got some charts for that. Um, I was on Martin North's show, uh, Digital Finance Analytics, on this subject the other day and we, I, I mentioned this, but, but I didn't use the graphs for here, but we can show the graphs here. This, this is one of the first, we were looking at this really early on from 1994, but um, I remember pulling together the data for this chart in 1997, right? And what you see there, well, I want to point out a couple of things about it. Note that the, the derivatives compared to the assets of the banks, um, the assets of the banks are all, are all over $100 billion. The derivatives are hundreds of billions of dollars, right? Hundreds of billions. But also note that CBA had the smallest derivatives. And the reason for that is this is 1997. The, year be, the CBA was only privatised the year before, right? Um, now... There's another one I want to show the, I just want to use that one. If we jump to, I want to show where, where CBA starts to rise. Okay, so if you go, if you go to this one that we did in uh, 2011 and look at, this, look at the difference, a couple of differences here. So what you have is now the derivatives are in the trillions for all the banks. Um, really big explosion in derivatives, but also note the growth in CBA's derivatives. This is 2011. They went from being last in 1997 mm. to second in 2011. The next year, CBA stopped disclosing their derivatives in their annual report. They stopped disclosing that figure. We could no longer keep that series. So, And then all the other banks copied them. And so this final chart we'll show is from 2018, which was the last time Westpac um, showed its derivatives. Uh, and we, we projected what they might be hiding from the other banks based on the growth rates, um, uh, but they just continued to soar. These derivatives absolutely continued to soar in that time. And you see that, so you can't get the breakdown per bank anymore. No. Um, because they were, and, and, I, and as I told Martin North, when, when, when CBA stopped disclosing its derivatives, I called them up because it was 2012. And I said, um, where are you, why aren't you disclosing these derivatives? And they said, oh, no, no, we, that's not, they're, not, um, they're not important. That's not an issue. I said, are you kidding me? Four years ago, the whole global financial system blew up because of these. And they said, oh, no, no, sorry. That, those, those are those dangerous derivatives. Ours are just plain vanilla derivatives. And so my question was, well, hang on. The growth, if they're plain vanilla, why are they growing so fast? What's, what's, what does that match in the financial system that you've got to engage in this? And they didn't want to answer that question. My question to the government, we, 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 we posed this in um, uh, press releases at the time. Why is the government allowing, mm -hmm. just after the, the global financial crisis that, blew, that, troop, that proved how dangerous these things were, why is the government allowing these banks to start hiding? And the it? regulators, where are and the, they? And the regulators. So then look at this. This is our latest graph here. We'll put it on the screen. This, we keep, the RBA keeps... Um, what do they call it? Disaggregated figures. So that's, these are derivatives for all the banks. And uh, we'll get the, pro, the, the person in production to, put, to, to note where 2013 is. You'll see there's a little hump there. It got, they got to about $14 trillion. Sorry, in 2008. $14 trillion in 2008 at the time of the GFC. Went down slightly after that. Mm. And then they embarked on you this. You look at the mountain since then. They've climbed a mountain since then. And at the top, there's been quite wild fluctuations but there, it's it's um it's one step back and then another surges two step forward steps mm, forward right. Mm -hmm. So we're not quite at a peak at the moment, but that is the is the 
the unpayable bets that are riddling our financial system. And this is what your banks are exposed to and therefore your derivatives, your, your deposits are exposed to. Yeah, and so when that goes, it wipes out everything. It takes everything with it. There's no saving something That's unless right. there's provisions put in place to protect the people, protect deposits, or there's an alternative, namely a public bank, where people can safely put their deposits. Because that's what we're getting to. We, yeah. the, the number one question when we talk about this subject for the last you know, um, 12 years, mm. 14 years since the global financial crisis, where do I put my money? Where do I put my money? And there is no answer to that. What we're saying, our campaign for a postal bank is the answer to that. Mm. That's where you put your money. If you just want a system where you're, you can put your deposit and you know it's safe and you get on with your life, and you don't have to worry about all this airy-fairy decision-making, gambling and all that sort of stuff going on, which is how our system used to work for the majority of people, right? Yeah, let the rich play gamble with their money. But yeah. the majority of people just want to have somewhere safe put on with life. We need to bring back a public bank. Now, the other thing is that when you look at that derivatives graph and you see that mountain building, what effectively is happening is that you have funds... Uh, pulled out, sucked out of the real economy yes. into speculation. So the other thing about a postal bank is that it can work in tandem, as we've envisioned it and others have, with a national infrastructure bank or a national investment bank that can begin to pull the funding away from that mountain of derivatives into back into the real economy and the crucial investments, especially at the local council level that is so obviously needed, um, to build the things that we need for day-to-day -day life, for a decent standard of living, which is gone based on the kind of standard of living we once had. There's actually a couple of tiers of it. It can, it can do that, and we'll talk about that more in a second. Um, it can just do normal lending. But what I mean by normal lending, people might have forgotten. There was a time when the Australian banks did not do all their lending into mortgages. Mm. <laughs> they did their... The, small businesses could get loans once upon a time without having to put their house up, right? You, you, this, this, the, the small business ombudsman's been screaming about this. Actually, we hadn't planned this. I want to play a little clip. I'll provide it for you. <laughs> this is of Alan Kohler, um, the ABC reporter, financial reporter on the night. He, he, did this, he did this last week, this little clip, and he's going to show a graph, which is a graph that we've, a variation of a graph that we've used on this show before. I just want to show you Alan Kohler using it. We've used it on this show, it's sourced from Digital um, uh, Investment Analytics by Dr. Wilson Sire. He produced this graph, just from APRA data, which shows how the, the um, percentage of lending by banks used to be majority business, mm. which Kohler makes a very important point about that because it's businesses that employ people to then pay their mortgages. So the banks used to lend majority to business and minority, a third, to mortgages, and it's totally switched over. So... Wilson Sy highlighted that way back in 2018. We first saw his graph and used it. Alan Kohler used it the other day in the same context because it's getting attention. Just have a quick look at that. And this graph explains what happened to us. It shows the value of all residential land as a percentage of GDP against bank lending as a percentage of GDP. Now that tells you that house prices and debt took off when banks were deregulated in the 1980s and the shackles came off. And that's also when banks went from being mainly lenders to businesses, which employ people and create wealth, to being mainly lenders for housing, which doesn't. But it's safer and more profitable. 
And that's that's just basic lending. That's just banks saying, yeah, we're, our, we're here to serve the economy. We're not here to make money from other people's money. We're here to make money by helping other people make money in business, mm. right? And so that's basic. That's just That should be the standard for normal banking, which our postal bank will do, plus it can do the long-term stuff as well for infrastructure. Yeah, and I want to mention two examples of how this is happening overseas, and you can read more about it in this week's Australian Alert Service. You can contact us for a copy. We can send you a complimentary one if we haven't already. Um, but so in the United Kingdom, um, we came across this report. Um, we actually reported on it at the time, and this was in March 2019, uh, put out by the Communications Workers' Union and Democracy Collaborative in the UK, entitled A New Public Banking Ecosystem. So it was a fascinating report, but one of the key things, and there's lengthy excerpts in the Australian Alert Service if you want to know more, but they talked about how um, utilising the post offices um, can mesh in with their proposal for a national investment bank. And after this came out, the then shadow chancellor of the Labor Party, John McDonnell, announced that they would extend their plan for a national investment bank to use the local post offices as branches of a publicly owned government-run bank, where the 3,600-odd post offices would service customers funneling credit, as they put it, into small and medium enterprises. Um, So that's a stunning example. And we were really shocked, actually, how similar their concept of the postal bank was to ours. Yeah, because there's there's variations on postal banking around the world. In in Japan's, for instance, they've got the biggest postal bank in the world, which has been at the the centre of their post-war economic success. But it is... It takes in the deposits. It doesn't lend out to the public. It takes that deposits and as a wholesaler, it lends them those deposits into Japan's industry banks, and gets put to work that way. Um, so that's what's one model. That's one model. The other model is just a purely retail bank, right? Where you just take in deposits and, and lend to the local communities. And Bernie Sanders is putting up a variation of that for the United States, which is taking deposits, but then make only micro loans, right? For the, so so it can replace payday lending. Mm-hmm. Which is which just rips people off, so there's a variation on that. We said, let's do, why can't it do it all of it, mm. right? And and so we said, let's have a let's have a, an interface between our postal bank and a national development bank, mm. right? So that your pos- your deposits not only are they safe and guaranteed by the government, but you know that they can be used that your savings are helping develop Australia. That's what we suggested. This British proposal is mm. identical. And I just wanted to mention, in addition to that, Bernie Sanders proposal. Um, public banking is exploding across the United States. I'll put up this map. We don't have time to go into this in detail, but I wrote an article in the Alert Service a few weeks back um, with recent examples in New York City, San Francisco, Massachusetts, and in this map shows many more from the uh, the lighter shades of green are the organised community groups that are fighting for a public bank through to um, bills and feasibility studies in the next darkest shade through to actual legislation that's been passed in the next darkest shade and the darkest of all, which is only one, is North Dakota, where they already have a public bank and it's been around um, you know, for a very long time there. But it's just fascinating how this is taking off because people see the financial system has failed us. We need yeah. to replace it. And the other thing I want to point to is the National Infrastructure Bank Coalition, which is a very large coalition of all kinds of different groups in the United States that are pushing for 
a national infrastructure bank. There's a bill on the table of Congress. It now has 12 co-sponsors, up from just a couple not, not long ago, and they're getting more endorsements where states like California are passing uh, resolutions calling on the Federal Congress to pass this public uh, banking bill, um, which would use the national banking principles to create $5 trillion to lend into infrastructure immediately. Um, but the, I wanted to show a clip from one of their recent, they have regular webinars and Zoom calls and they have all kinds of organisers and people from uh, politicians to uh, banking experts. And this one from just a couple of weeks ago is a very interesting clip because it shows this principle that we've been talking a bit about, that if you use banking in this capacity to build the real economy and increase the productivity of labour and the output and the capacity to produce, inflation doesn't necessarily come with it if you do this the right way. So this is a short clip of Ellen Brown, the head of the Public Banking Institute. Um, she's discussing the history of credit and she ends talking about, she goes through the different examples in America. She, yeah. she ends at this section on, she's just been talking about Lincoln putting funding into infrastructure and how the transcontinental railway line returned a profit to the government and so forth. Uh, and then she talks about the example of China and what they're doing today. So just listen to this. And uh, according to Milton Friedman, this, although the money supply was doubled, it did not create pr uh, price inflation. There was some price inflation during the war, as there always is during wartime because of shortages. But as you can see from this chart, well, you can't see the whole chart, but it just inflation shoots up at the end after 1971, which, as we know, is when the dollar went off the gold standard. Um, and other, other uh, former um, British colonies followed the Hamilton, Money, uh, Hamil Hamilton model as well in, in founding national banks, including Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. I don't have time to go into it, but they're quite interesting models. I've written about those. Uh, <clears throat> but in the US, what we got was the Federal Reserve, which did not work quite the same way. And we, of course, we wound up in the Great Depression in the 1930s. Uh, the whole world wound up in the Great Depression. But uh, uh, Roosevelt pulled us through the Depression with another Hamiltonian financial institution. It started it was the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. So it started with $500 million in capitalization. It issued bonds. And over the next 25 years, it loaned or invested over $40 billion and uh, rebuilt the country through the New Deal and funded um, much of the US participation in World War II. And at the end of all that, it turned a profit for the government. Uh, candidates did something similar with the Bank of Canada. I can't go into that. Um, <clears throat> and today, the most impressive model is China, which has been the fastest growing economy in the world in the last 40 years. That's the red line shooting up there. So how did they do it? Um, <clears throat> they, they went from one of the poorest countries in the world to a global uh, economic powerhouse. They did it through in massive banks. They had three massive development banks, and the government owns 80% of Chinese banking assets. So the, the, the government would, for example, build high-speed rail or dams or power stations by issuing bank credit. And then the um, fees from what was built with the loans would go back and repay the loans. So again, a sustainable system. Um, 
And over the last 23 years, the China, Chinese money supply has grown by 1,800%. That's by a factor of 18, which is incredible. And yet, prices have remained stable, as you can tell from these two charts. The top one is the money supply, and the second one is prices. Why? Because their uh, GDP went up at the same rate. So you have uh, supply and demand going up and together, up together. And so, as Bob points out, that it all stayed in balance, and prices remain stable. That's all I got. Thank you. So yeah, you know, you can kill two birds with one stone. All this inflation we're tackling now needn't be the case. But back to that derivatives graph. You know, we've been pumping out quantitative easing in various ways for a long time now. Yeah. We've created this bubble, which is bringing everything with it. When you say it needn't be the case, it won't be the case. If, you, if, if, if the money, that's an extraordinary chart from China. That's a massive increase in its money supply, but no inflation. Why? Because mm. matching that increase in money supply was an expansion of its production of goods and services. Mm. That's why, because of the way it organises its economy. That's how you do it. You, we need... There's going to be an argument in Australia, and in fact, the current government is already doing it. We have to balance the budget. Things like rat tests and that, the things that were, they were actually attacking Scott Morrison for not having free rat tests at first. They're now saying, no, no, rat tests can't be free. Why? Because we've got to balance the budget. Well, that's not how you deal with inflation, right? You, we need more money in the system, but we've got to change the balance so it's not this crap. It's not speculation. It's not housing. It's not housing loans. that just making. See, we've had inflation all along. That's what your house price rise is not extra value. It's inflation. It was always there. Now it's getting into the real economy. The rest of the economy. Yeah. Go back to putting money. Let those things collapse. Deflate those bubbles and put the money into yeah. things that increase expand production. Yeah, because by blowing that bubble up we neglected the real economy and it's yep. collapsed and it's absolutely virtually gone. Yep. But we are going to move on. Yep. We're going to talk about uh, the prospect of, you know, potentially working with other countries such as China that have formulated a way out of this in the direction we're actually discussing. So who won't give peace a chance is the question. Do you want to listen to names? <laughs> <laughs> we don't have time. <laughs> But we did have uh, a meeting between the foreign ministers of Australia and China take place, and that's quite historic in and of itself, actually, a big deal. Um, it's a small step, however, and there's a lot to be done. So we had Penny Wong meeting with Wang Yi. Uh, now, the most interesting thing that we wanted to focus on here is, though, is how the media lied about it and said China had issued four, quote-unquote, demands, without which, you know, this won't go any further. Um, that is an outright right lie because as former Australian diplomat Jocelyn Che um, stated, this is I'm just going to read her translation of exactly what the Chinese said. So it's not demands. She said, they, they, they said, first, China should continue to be regarded as a partner, not a rival. Second, the way of seeking common ground while reserving differences should be maintained. Third, the practice of not aiming at others or being controlled by others should be maintained. Fourth, the building of a foundation of positive, practical community support should be maintained. And Che commented, she said, when read with better appreciation of the subtlety of language, as obviously it's translated, one sees readily that the official report of this historic meeting is positive. So it wasn't China coming out and saying, you do this, that and the other, or there's no go. They were yeah. <clears throat> making suggestions about how it will work. And most of it is saying we continue to do this 
maintaining this, etc. And this brings us to the first answer to the question, who won't give peace a chance? Um, these jerks in the media, because mm. there's two of them in particular I'll single out, Bill Bertles from the ABC and Will Glasgow from The Australian. And they're the ones who um, ran with this headline, um, China issues four demands. And then, of course, the, the brain-dead politicians who had cameras put and, and microphones put in their face, how do you respond to China's demands? Then, like a, a reflex, said, oh, we will not respond to demands, mm. right? How dare they make demands? And there was no demands to start with. So, who, so why did these guys do it? Well, frankly... Um, like I said, jerks, jerks is, a, is a, uh, a kind word. Will Glasgow, um, I've, um, I've been at him on uh, Twitter about this because then he became quite nasty. And in fact, I'll go so far as to say bitchy. He singled out, Jocelyn Che's transaction showed him Translation. up. Translation. Translation, sorry. Translation showed him up because, um, so you know what he did to her? He tried to, he, he engaged in the politically correct term now is ageism. He decided to make an issue out of her age. Oh, look, this old lady, not in these, I'm paraphrasing, but we'll put the tweet up. Yeah, he said something like, listen to DFAT today, not DFAT from the 1980s or something. Yeah, he was, he was highlighting her age. And then he put a photo of her up there, to, to, to presumably to highlight that she's an older woman. Well, guess what has that got to do with anything? She's an expert. She's someone who is credited with building our relationship with China over the decades. Penny Wong said she wanted to stabilise the relationship. Well, they're exactly the kind of people you need to talk to. That's why I've been into, I interviewed John Lander on this show. Mm. That's why um, yesterday I interviewed Matt Robson from New Zealand again, who's an experienced person. You, do we want to go to war with China or not? And mm. if we don't, and you want to improve the relationship, listen to the people who built the damn thing, and this arsehole decided to make an issue of her age. And then he doubled down on it um, uh, today in a, in a totally, uh, frankly, disgusting way. And what you see in both with both him and, and um, Bertels, remember there was a, once a time when the media, especially the ABC, but also the broadsheets, not the tabloids, tabloid media's always been nuts, but the broadsheets, what the age used to be, Sydney Morning Herald, The Australian, etc., they pretended to be objective journalists, Right? So that's why they're called broadsheets. Only serious people read them. The, board, the people who get, got easily bored read the tabloids. They, there's no even pretense of objectivity in this. Mm. They are polemicists that spend all their time snarking and sniping at China. And they're the ones who translate the news to you about what China's up to. They're lying. And this one, they were completely shown out. And because, he was, because a lot of people went after Will Glasgow on, um, on uh, Twitter... He, he's, he's just reacted quite a lot. But thank God that we've got people like Jocelyn Shea around mm. to tell us the truth. And the other Oh, sorry, one last thing. The proof, the latest thing today that proves he was wrong about his initial report was that he has an article today, Elisa, or, or last night, reporting that China may now change its policy and let more coal come back in from Australia. Mm -hmm. that's, a direct, that's a direct result from the Wang Wong meeting. In other words, that meeting resulted in progress and, and, it, and that meeting showed goodwill from China. Mm. It proves he had the report today, something that proves that his first report, which he's trying to defend, was rubbish. And that's, you know, that's just the nature of it. We follow this stuff closely. We don't expect our viewer to follow it closely, but we want to highlight these examples so that you learn 
especially when it comes to a subject like China, stop believing the, the, hot, the, the way they're put, trying to push your buttons because it's never been true. That's why our party takes the position it does. Yeah, and you had just to show the other side of who's instigating this, and we've written a lot about this in the alert service recently, about the US and UK with Australia right on the coattails trying to prevent anyone, which has been the game plan since the end of the Cold War, anyone challenging the unilateral power of yep. the US in conjunction with the UK. So you had Pompeo, who's planning, Mike Pompeo, planning a run for the presidency in the future at some point, saying at a speech at the Hudson Institute, our government should immediately confer diplomatic recognition to Taiwan. Taiwan is already an independent country, he said. We should just re simply reflect that fact. That's a declaration of war. Absolutely. Um, now he, But he went on to say this, which I think highlights what we just said is the real motive. We must prevent the formation of a pan-Eurasian colossus incorporating Russia but led by China. And to do that, we have to strengthen NATO. Our, one of our MPs, Andrew Hastie, was just, he's been over in London at addressing another Henry Jackson Society meeting on engaging Taiwan. Uh, and he said a similar thing. He said, authoritarian powers are on the move. They're always on the move and looking to reshape the world order and bend it to their liking. Well, as we've just spent a lot of time showing, the world order needs to be reshaped. <laughs> And we point out in this week's Australian Alert Services an article about how Russia and China are putting forward financial solutions. They're actually making measures, inserting um, different provisions into the IMF, the Bank for International Settlements systems with liquidity funds and so forth. You can read the details um, to begin to make it easier for countries to access the credit and the liquidity they need to build their economies. That's They've been doing that with the Belt and Road and with yep. other initiatives for a while. So that's what the Anglo-Americans are, you know, very, very well aware of and very concerned about. Um, the question is, you know, they're talking about extending NATO as the way to solve that, particularly vis-a-vis -vis China. Um, is this really a, a mechanism, a, a forum that we want in the Pacific? Well, we have another article this week, Elisa, that might highlight for people why uh, not. But, if, but related to that, I want to just make, take issue with the Henry Jackson Society. In 2019, Andrew Hastie, when they say, um, when that elbows idiotic mantra, we didn't change, China changed, it's, it, I can't, like, like I said, ranted a few weeks ago, he's, he, he's happy to go and suck up to Macron, a white guy, Oh look, you you were done badly by by my predecessor. He's a, yeah, he's a jerk. I'm gonna I'm gonna kiss your butt. Well, he's effectively just his attitude to China is effectively justifying the behaviour of his predecessors, including this one, because it was at the Henry Jackson Society in 2019 that Andrew Hastie gave a speech where he compared China with the Nazis. China, the country that suffered the second highest number of casualties in World War II at the hands of the Nazis, allied Japan. Right, who we now kiss up to, and we're all gushing over poor old Abe, and yeah, that's tragic, right? But Abe denied the war crimes of World War II. My grandfather fought against his forces on the Kokoda track. He he was part of a, a disturbing movement in modern Japan to, to deny all that. Um, yet Andrew Hastie, we're, we're best buddies with him, and Andrew Hastie though uh, goes and says the Chinese are the Nazis. That's what. But he said at the Henry Jackson Society. These people are evil. This is one of the most evil organisations in the world. Like, there's no exaggeration. 
they have an ethos. They're, they're the neocons in the UK, and their whole philosophy is only our sort of governments, liberal democracies they call it, which basically means the governments that pretend to be democratic and get themselves elected and then work for the banks. That's what a liberal democracy means, right? They privatise everything. They steal from you and hand it all over to the, their banker buddies. That's what liberal democracies are, not, even, not democratic. But only those sort of governments are legitimate. And this is the sting in the tail. Every government that's not a legitimate democracy, we legitimate democracies have the right to overthrow them, mm -hmm. including through military means. Yeah. And of course, one of their co-founders in 2011, at the end of the Libya intervention, which, one, which is the second worst war crime of the 21st century, bragged, see, democracy can be dropped from 10,000 feet, i.e. we can bomb countries into being democracies. So we've reported in the alert about the update on the Manchester bombing, which the Manchester bombing in 2017, which was a terrible ter terrorist attack, was by a guy who was clearly aided and abetted by British intelligence to go and learn to become a terrorist in Libya. Because they had to bring down Gaddafi. Because they had so to bring down Gaddafi, mm. right? They took one of the most advanced countries in Africa and reduced it to rubble, a basket case, a failed state. In 2016, the British House of Commons wrote a report that said, oops, how bad? Yes, it was a lie. Yes, it's turned into a disaster. Oops! That, they write the report, gets put on a shelf, and they carry on regardless, and you've got to believe them all again on Russia and everything else they lie about, right? Um, but their own report, their own investigation of this Manchester terrorist bombing, which killed all those people in 2017, it was their guy who they, t who they allowed to go and become a terrorist because he was, by being a terrorist, he was pursuing their foreign policy, Right, the bringing down of Gaddafi, that's the guy who did it. And that was a NATO intervention, what, what happened to Libya. Go, if you don't know about it, go look it up. Yep. And that's what we want to bring into the Pacific? Hell no. So on that note, please watch, when we put it up on um, Wednesday, my interview with Matt Robson, former Cabinet Minister of New Zealand, who was the New Zealand's um, Minister for Disarmament, Associate Minister for Foreign Policy, knows the Pacific backwards, is an expert in this area, you watch that interview about these broader pictures, to, the issues to do with NATO and whether we want it in the Pacific. Share it, please. Watch it. It'll go up on Wednesday. Share it as widely as possible. This is a guy who's been in government making these decisions. He tells really disturbing things about Five Eyes and how it works, which is the intelligence partnership that basically um, you know, spreads the lies to all these members of parliament to make them dance this tune. It's a real bombshell interview, so make sure you watch it. Yes, and that's the show for this week. So thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Alisa. We'll see you next week. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.